The title of this morning's message is Flawless. I was supposed to minister this message last week, <laughs> but we weren't here because <laughs> of the weather. <laughs> you know, when you prepare something for a certain Sunday, you think it's only for that Sunday. And of course, that Sunday didn't materialize. So I was like, okay, Lord, is this the same word? Do I do a different word? Because God knows who's going to be here. And I always want to give fresh bread. I want you to eat well when you come to church. As I was preparing, I was like, something new, something different? What, Lord? And he said, no, do the same one. And one of the things that happens to me while I'm preparing a message is I keep going, are you sure, God? You're positive. I'm supposed to say this? Really? <laughs> yes, daughter. Yes. Yes, you hear me. And what I've come to speak to myself is, you're always right. Father, you're always right. Even when I don't feel like it might be the perfect word or the perfect message, my father says, no, I'm always right. Just go with me. Just flow with me because I'm always right. So if you don't like this message, <laughs> father's always right. <laughs> okay, so this morning's message is called Flawless. Here at Triumphant Grace, we often sing the chorus to the song that you just heard. It's by Mercy Me, and it's called Flawless. And one of the lines in it says, The cross has made you flawless. So what does it mean to be flawless? And is it true? Have we actually been made flawless through the cross of Jesus Christ? And if so, in what way are we actually flawless? Why is this truth so important for us to be established in? As we look in the scripture this morning, my hope is to be able to prove to you that you are indeed flawless because of the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's start by looking at the definition of the word flawless. I always use Webster's 1828 dictionary. If you've ever seen a Webster's 1828 dictionary, you can get saved by reading the dictionary. <laughs> Noel Webster was a scholar. He knew 26 different languages. Okay, so when he made the dictionary, he made it so that it would correspond to the scripture. So that's why I always use that one. He says that the word flawless means without cracks and without defect. The word cracks refers to brokenness. If something is cracked, then it is actually broken, even if the parts haven't completely separated. And the word defect refers to a lack of something necessary, a deficiency. So when something is flawless, it is without cracks and it is without defects. It is without deficiency. Therefore, it is perfect. It is not lacking anything necessary to perfection. And it's not broken in any way. It's perfect or complete. So if we are flawless, we must also be perfect. Webster's 1828 again. How does he explain perfect? He says it means finished, complete, consummate, which means brought to perfection by completing what was intended, not defective, I like this one, having all that is requisite to its nature and kind. And he gives us examples. A perfect statue, a perfect likeness, a perfect work, and a perfect system. This kind of perfection refers to something that needs nothing added to it and is fully supplied with everything needed to be deemed perfect, finished, or complete. 
these examples that Noah gave us, I really like them. I don't usually put them in the definition for you to see, but I'm going to use them. <laughs> I like all of these because how Noah Webster thinks. We can see that he had Jesus in mind. <laughs> all of these examples were furnished by Noah, and he starts with a statue, a perfect statue. A statue is a perfect representation of somebody. That sound familiar? <laughs> our Jesus is the perfect representation of our Father. He shows us what our Father is really like. It says perfect likeness. Jesus is the perfect likeness of our Father, both in his nature and his attributes, and a perfect work. Jesus completed the perfect work of providing salvation in his perfectly obedient life and his perfectly obedient death, which together secured our perfect salvation, which is obtained through a perfect system. Faith in Jesus is the perfect system or method of saving mankind. Jesus is perfect, and everything he did and does is perfect too. Of course, these other words we use to describe the works that Jesus accomplished in his life on the earth. As he lived unto the Father and in his death on the cross, he was perfect. Jesus lived a perfect, flawless, sinless life. Hebrews 4.15 tells us this, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was perfectly human and perfectly divine. He was God and he was man. And he lived a perfectly sinless life so that he would be qualified to bear the sin of all mankind in his body and then rise from the dead, completely victorious over sin and death. Death only has power where there is sin, and Jesus had no sin of his own, therefore he couldn't stay dead. In fact, he had to lay down his life. No one could actually take it from him. He had to lay it down and say, I'm going to put it down <laughs> because this is for you. <laughs> Otherwise, he couldn't die. He had no sin. What I want you to see is the fact that Jesus bore our sins in his body, and yet our sins did not in any way affect his righteousness. We find this truth in 1 Peter verses 20 through 25. We're going to take a little bit of a detour in order to get where we're going. I wanted to just give you context. Starting with verse 20. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Here, Peter is obviously talking about Jesus on the cross and the suffering that he went through. And we know that by the next verse. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now here in chapter 2, Peter is speaking to believers about continuing to be in submission to the authorities placed over them. And he encourages them to continue to glorify God with their behavior, <laughs> even if those in authority treat them harshly because of their faith. So Peter uses Jesus as an example of how to respond to being ill-treated either by a government or a master. 
For us, a master in this day and age would probably correspond to an employer. So Peter is talking about responding to those who have control, or at least the upper hand, over believers. And he says, respond like Jesus. How did Jesus respond? Well, first, he committed no sin. This is usually where we get into trouble. <laughs> when someone mistreats us, our response isn't always kind and loving. Sometimes we want to fight back. But he says he committed no sin. And second, there was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Don't speak against those in authority. And then number three, he entrusted himself to his father. This is our example. Don't do what you know you shouldn't do. Be careful about what you say. And above all, entrust yourself to the Father. If Jesus can entrust himself to the Father while suffering all that he endured on the cross, then surely we can entrust ourselves to Jesus and our Father when we go through unjust suffering. Peter then points the reader back to Isaiah 53, which describes the ultimate unjust suffering. In Isaiah chapter 53, beginning with verse 4, it says this, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of this refers to the passion of our Lord Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the one waited for. What I want you to see is that God dealt with sin in the body of Christ, in his literal flesh. Scripture says that Jesus carried our sin and iniquity, and sin and iniquity received its just penalty, which is death. But this sin never touched the spirit or soul of Christ. Jesus never became sinful in his spirit man, even though he carried the sin of the entire world for all time in his flesh. Jesus himself always remained completely flawless, sinless, and righteous in his spirit. Now, if this is true, and it is, what about the scripture that says that Jesus became sin for us? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For he, God the Father, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus never became sin itself inside of himself. Jesus never became full of sin. Jesus put sin on like a coat. It was what was in his body. You see, sin has to have death. The only place that could die on Jesus was his flesh <laughs> because he was sinless. And that's the only reason it could die was because the Father counted his sin as our sin. So Jesus became our sin offering. Jesus became our sin bearer. Just like a lamb under the old covenant, a man would lay his hand on a lamb and confess his sin and thereby legally transfer the responsibility for that sin to the lamb. And then the lamb would die in man's place and the innocence of the lamb would be imputed or legally transferred to the man. In the same way, God imputed our sins to Jesus. The word imputed means to transfer legal responsibility. So God made Jesus legally responsible for all of our sins. And because Jesus took that responsibility, Jesus received the penalty that those sins deserved, which was death. 
So Jesus became sin on our behalf, judicially and substitutionally. Jesus never became sin inside of himself. He always remained sinless and flawless, which is why he had the right to rise from the dead. Jesus carried all the sin in his flesh for the express purpose of taking it into physical death. What I want you to see is that sin on or in Jesus' flesh did not in any way affect his righteousness, his sinlessness, or his flawlessness. Sin didn't change who or what Jesus was and still is. Sin didn't change Jesus. 1 John 4.17 says this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. If Jesus is flawless, then we are flawless. Where? In our spirit. Not out here in our flesh. <laughs> flesh is icky. <laughs> we know that Jesus is flawless and sinless and seated at the right hand of God, but so are we. Jesus has given us his very own righteousness, but it's all in our spirit, man. We are now brand new creations. Our who has changed. We were born again. We became one spirit with Christ. He's perfect and flawless. So then we must be perfect and flawless too. In our spirit, we start from who we really are in our spirit. We have to make a distinction of where our righteousness resides. It resides in our spirit, where it cannot be altered or affected by sin in our flesh. Just like Jesus on the cross, his flesh bore the sin and paid the penalty, not his spirit. Jesus never became a sinner, even though he carried all the sin of mankind. And the same is true for us. Even though we may have sin in our flesh, it never affects our righteous spirit. We never go back to being a sinner. <laughs> sin never touches our spirit man. And we can see this truth in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. It says this, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Anyone ever stumbled over that one? <laughs> For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Most believers and translators do not believe this verse to be true. And we don't believe that born-again people do not commit sin. And there's good reason for it. We know ourselves. <laughs> we know we fall short of God's glorious perfection out here in the flesh. So when we look at a scripture like this, we can think, uh-oh, <laughs> born-again people does not commit sin. Um, uh-oh, <laughs> I think I have a problem. <laughs> you see, if this is true, I'm in trouble. Because the truth is, if we have to be sinless or flawless in our behavior in order to be truly born again, then we are all doomed. <laughs> Thank God that's not true. This verse can be very scary if we don't understand what truth John is talking about. Because this verse sounds so scary and so impossible, even scholars and translators have gone so far as to add to Scripture. They add a word to make it a little more palatable for us born-again people who fall and make mistakes. And they make it say something it doesn't actually say. They add the word habitually or practice, changing the original meaning. It's because they don't understand where sin takes place in the life of a believer. I want you to see this verse in several different translations. The Weymouth translation. No one who is a child of God is habitually guilty of sin. A God-given germ of life remains in him, and he cannot habitually sin because he is a child of God. 
what they do is they try to make everybody feel better. <laughs> Yet we know you're going to have sin in your flesh. So we don't want you to think you're not truly born again, so we'll just add this habitually word. That way you can feel better instead of revealing the truth of what the scripture is trying to tell us. The ISV version says this, no one who has been born from God practices sin because God's seed abides in him. Indeed, he cannot go on sinning because he has been born from God. Again, they're trying to say, we know you have stumbles and fall. We know you make mistakes. You have failures. We want you to feel okay about that. That's not what the scripture is trying to convey. That's why God didn't put the word habitually in there. He didn't put the word practice in there. He said, those who are born again do not commit sin. How can that be true? It depends on where you're looking. If you look at who we are in Christ, sin never touched Jesus. It didn't change who he was. Sin doesn't change who we are in Christ. We have Christ's righteousness. Sin doesn't change who and what we are, a brand new creation. Now, is it bad for you? Yes. Don't do it. You won't like it. You'll feel awful. But that doesn't change what he's trying to tell us here. Sin never touches who we are in our spirit any more than it touched Jesus in his spirit. And then Young's literal translation says this, Everyone who has been begotten of God, sin he doth not, because his seed in him doth remain. I like this. He is not able to sin because of God he hath begotten. In our spirit, man, we are not able to sin. Sin doesn't originate in our spirit. You see, before we received Christ, yes, Sin was who we were and what we did, and we did it all the time. And we couldn't help it because we were sinners. <laughs> sinners sin because they're sinners. We're not sinners anymore. When Christ came in, we ceased to be a sinner. We became the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The Apostle John is actually talking about who we are, not about our doing. He wants us to know that sin no longer has a part of who we are. When we sin, we do not become sinful. Just like Jesus on the cross. We do not become sinful. We're going to have consequences. We're going to feel guilty. We're going to feel bad. That doesn't change who we are before our Father. Now, it will change who you are before your friends. <laughs> it'll change who you are before the, the officer that pulls you over. It'll change everybody else's opinion. But it won't change your father's opinion. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So John here, he wants us to know that sin no longer has a part of who we are. His point is, in our spirit, our born-again, sinless, flawless, righteous spirit, there is no sin. Our spirit man cannot sin. Our flesh can. <laughs> this isn't the real us. This isn't the real us. The real us is the born-again creation on the inside. This is a picture like Jesus on the cross. There was sin in his flesh, but not in his being, not in his spirit. And God sees us the same way. Yes, our flesh may sin, but it never undoes who we are in Christ. Just as Jesus remained the spotless Son of God, even though he carried in his flesh the sin of the entire world, 
so do we. We remain spotless before our Father. We have been born of God, the Father, and we are married to God, the Son, and we are filled with God, the Holy Spirit. We are completely one with the living God in our spirit. That's who we really are. When our flesh acts a mess, that's not who we are. That's just evidence that we don't know who we are. <laughs> we don't know what we got on the inside of us. You see, Jesus didn't just come to forgive acts of sin. He came to destroy the very power of sin that lived on the inside of us. We used to be sinners. We used to enjoy sin. Now we don't. It makes us miserable. <laughs> but now we have a new nature, God's nature. And we are completely new, born-again creations, and our spirit man cannot sin. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, this is God speaking about what was coming. This is him foretelling what he was going to do. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. You do not have two natures. You are not a sinner and a saint. The sinner died on the cross. Now you're a saint. You're a saint. Sinner died. He has no power. He left all of his stinking thinking, but he's dead. <laughs> God took out that old sin nature. We're not sinners anymore. And it continues, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now, in the New Testament, that means something different, doesn't it? <laughs> but he's just saying, no, teachable. I will give you a heart that's pliable and teachable, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. The indwelling spirit of God causes or works in connection with our new heart and our new spirit to bring about changes in our walk, how we live, and in even what we want. When God changed our nature, he changed our wanter. We sang today, all I want is to stand in your presence. All I want. Isn't that the cry of our, oh, I just want to live right there all the time, Jesus. <laughs> That's the desire of our heart. He changed our wanter. As new creation, our new heart wants to please our Father. Our new heart doesn't want to sin, but our flesh still does. Approximately 40 years ago, I hate saying that, my goodness, I was a young mother, <laughs> and I was relatively new to the concept of salvation. I had received Christ at age 10, but I knew nothing. I wasn't discipled. I wasn't churched. I lived like a sinner because that's all I knew how to do. <laughs> and I understood almost nothing about salvation. My theology was try to do your best, and hopefully your good will outweigh your bad, and then maybe God will let you go to heaven when you die. That is bad theology. <laughs> that doesn't work at all. <laughs> so I was a very inexperienced believer, and God put me in a little holiness church when I was about 21. And one of the things my holiness church taught me was that smoking was a sin. Guess what? I was a smoker. <laughs> and so they told me, well, you're in sin. I said, oh, that must be bad. <laughs> I don't want to be in sin. <laughs> you see, because they also taught me that if I had sin in my life, God could not even look at me until I confessed my sin, until I had turned away from it and gotten myself forgiven for it. And until I did, then I was on my own. At that time, I was taught that God couldn't even look on sin. So if I was, quote-unquote, in sin, God couldn't look at me. You would be surprised how many people think this is still true. It's a big, fat lie. 
But most believers, a lot of them, still think this way. They think their sin separates them from Christ. It's impossible for us to be separated from Christ. We're one. You can't undo us. <laughs> Nobody can undo us. We are one with Christ. Now, what my church had innocently done was mix Old Covenant theology with New Covenant theology. And when you mix the old with the new, you get bad. <laughs> For starters, if God couldn't look at sin, then he couldn't look at people. Nowhere in the scripture does it say God cannot look at sin. He looks at all of us. He's not intimidated by sin. No, he's defeated sin. He doesn't even care about sin, except for the fact that it hurts us. He is not affected in any way by sin. You know, it grieves his heart when we do it. It grieves his heart when sinners do it, because he doesn't want them to suffer the effects of sin. But not be able to look at sin, he couldn't look at people. That's just not true. The closest thing you can find, and my holiness church was really helpful in this area, <laughs> Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. It says this, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You see, that's what they heard. Your eyes can't look upon sin. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. They stop there. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? You see, my church took this verse and interpreted it as meaning God can't tolerate you <laughs> or even look at you when you've committed a sin. And this verse doesn't mean anything like that. Habakkuk is saying to God, I know you don't approve of evil. So why aren't you stopping those evildoers? <laughs> why don't you make them stop, Jesus? <laughs> That's what his question was. Can't you stop them? And the answer is no. God never stopped you from doing something you wanted to do. No, he'll try to talk you out of it. But he always lets us have our free will. Habakkuk just wanted to see some good old-fashioned punishment. And he wasn't seeing it, so he was upset. <laughs> so this verse has nothing to do with sin in the life of a new covenant believer. But Habakkuk was right about how God feels about sin. He hates it. He absolutely despises it. But he adores people. He adores people who are in sin just as much as he adores people who are born again. And those are two completely different things. People who are in sin are unbelievers. They have sin in their nature. They live out from who they are. They're sinners. Born again believers never go back to being a sinner, even though they sin in their flesh. Who we are in our spirit is completely separate from our fleshly physical body and our natural carnal thinking. Just as Jesus could carry sin in his body and not contaminate his righteous, sinless, flawless spirit, neither does the committing of a sin in our flesh contaminate our righteousness, our sinlessness, and our flawless spirit. Now some of you might be thinking, wait a minute here, what if we are actually guilty of sin? <laughs> Don't we need to repent and confess our sin and be really sorry and make promises to God that we'll never do it again so that God will forgive us of our sin and make us right with him again? No, absolutely not. You see, I lived this way forever. I was always repenting. I was always sorry for being human. <laughs> I was always sorry for something. Because I didn't want to be in sin. I was sin conscious and not son conscious. 
And so I was always failing. Being sorry never removed one sin. Being sorry never made me strong enough to change. Confessing my sin never transferred guilt. It's not a lamb by lamb salvation. It's the one and only lamb who took all of the sin. I'm not transferring anything to Jesus anymore. He took it all. He did it all at one time. He dealt with every sin. All the ones I haven't even committed yet. They've all been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he imputed that righteousness to me. You see, now when I sin in my flesh, he doesn't even legally hold me responsible to pay for that sin because I can't. You see, we got to get our minds changed. We can't pay for our sin. How ridiculous. What's the payment for sin? Death. None of us are paying for any sin. Now, are there consequences for sin? Oh, yeah. That's why he says stay away from it. It's deadly. It messes everything up. But you and I remain spotless before our Father. All sin was dealt with at the cross. We know that Jesus died to take away the sin of the entire world. But we have a tendency to act like he only died for the sins we confess, which is not true. He died for all of them. He's already dealt with all of them. We have a tendency to act as if we are still a sinner under the old covenant. And we need to lay hands on our lamb and confess our sins in order to transfer guilt. But under the new covenant, we don't even have any guilt to transfer, even if we feel guilty. You see, that's why we confess to Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I just blew it. I'm so sorry. Is that appropriate? Absolutely. We're in relationship. I would apologize to my husband. Why wouldn't I apologize to my heavenly husband? Do we say sorry? Well, of course we do, because we are. (laughs) If you love Jesus, you hate it when you sin. You don't like it. So we say sorry. Yes. Does that change anything with God? No. You see, he's already dealt with all my sin. My problem is now my consciousness. God, I feel guilty. God, I just blew it. He's not taking in the sin away. He's already dealt with all my sin. My sinless, flawless spirit remains pure. Now, do we confess? Yes, we confess our flesh made a mess. You see, but he's the only one that can fix it. He's the only one that changes our mind so we think differently. But it doesn't change who we are. We never go back to being a guilty sinner, even when our flesh sins. And that's because Jesus has already taken the legal responsibility for all our sin. He took it all to the cross. Jesus paid it all for all people, for all time, for all sin. So that before God, we no longer stand condemned and guilty, even if we just blew it. We remain flawless. We remain innocent in our spirit. And when we do blow it, God doesn't impute our sins against us. I never knew this. You see, I had such a holiness church foundation that I never knew God doesn't impute sins to me as a believer. I never heard of such a thing. To impute is to make legally responsible for. We are no longer legally responsible to pay for our sins because they have all already been paid for by the cross of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's the prerequisite. (laughs) If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, that old stony heart, the old is gone. 
He died, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, brought us back into friendly relationship. He took away the barrier of sin. He reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We're supposed to tell people, God's not mad. God loves you. He wants you. He wants you to know him and this amazing love and this amazing power. He wants you to know you don't have to be a slave to the old sin nature anymore. That is, in Christ, God the Father was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Even when we blow it, he says, I know, you made a mess, come here. Let me wash you up. There was a point in my life when God was working on my heart. He wanted me to remember something, something I had done as a teenager. I accepted Christ when I was 10, and I lived like I didn't know nothing. I lived like a sinner. So there were things that I did as a teenager I don't even want to remember, Jesus. <laughs> and he said, no, no, I want you to remember this one day. No, not looking there. Can't make me. I don't want to see that. He goes, why? I said, because there's no way you could love me there. You see, that's what happens when we sin. We think, you, know, you can't possibly love me now. I just messed up big time. Look at what a mess I am. No, he says, no, you're not a mess. You may have made one, but you are not a mess. He showed me this picture. It was a little, um, about 18-month-old in a high chair. Someone had given that 18-month-old a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You know what happens to an 18-month-old who eats a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? It's everywhere. It's all over their hair and their ears. I don't even know how they manage to get that stuff where they do. They get it all over themselves. And he says, that's sin to me. It's just a mess. It doesn't change who you are one iota. Then he took a washcloth. <laughs> and he came over and he started to wash off the 18-month-old. He said, see, she's just as beautiful as the day I created her. She's just as perfect in my eyes. Sin makes a mess. Some pretty bad ones. But it doesn't change who we are in the eyes of our Father. He sees the real us. He knows he makes messes, and he will try to talk you out of making those messes. <laughs> but those messes never change how he sees us. When we come to him, oh, I just blew it, Jesus. He just takes a washcloth. He says, I know. I know, baby. But it's just a little mess. I'll help you clean it up. It's nothing. It doesn't have the power to change who you are. So, in Christ, we have been made new creations who are truly flawless, sinless, and perfectly righteous in our spirit. We need to identify with the truth of who we really are because our flesh will try to tell us something altogether different. Our flesh is our physical body and our natural thinking. Now, our physical body is good and it belongs to Jesus. He redeemed this too. Someday we're going to get a brand new one, much better, <laughs> a whole new one. But in the meantime, <laughs> we have this house. Jesus says it's good, and our bodies are not evil. Okay, Sin does not live in our bodies. Our bodies just respond to that. It was designed to be our house and to give us spiritual authority in the physical realm. We have spiritual authority because we have a physical body. Spirits don't have authority here. We do. <laughs> That's why we have a physical body and our spirit on the inside, so we can use our authority. Now, our house is very good, but it's a very bad master. It only thinks about itself, 
<laughs> the same goes for our natural thinking. Carnal natural thinking is contrary to truth. Carnal thinking is completely self-focused. And believe it or not, carnal thinking is also very religious. Carnal thinking tells us that we should be ashamed of ourselves when we sin. As if being ashamed of yourself could change yourself. No. Shame never makes you better. It makes you withdraw from God. God never uses shame. God never uses condemnation. God uses correction. And when God corrects you, it feels good. Oh, good, I'm glad you told me. I don't want to do that. <laughs> correction, we need correction, yes. But God doesn't use condemnation or shame to try to push us towards him. God doesn't push, he pulls. Carnal thinking tells us that God must be mad at us when we fail. Carnal thinking says that I can do something to make myself right in the sight of God. What do we call that? Self-righteousness. I was self-righteous. I used to try all the time to make myself pleasing and right in the sight of God by my behavior. I was wrong. I was always right in his sight. Now, my choice was wrong. The Father is very good to point out what's right and wrong. <laughs> it isn't that we don't know. <laughs> Cardinal thinking says we have the power to undo our righteousness. We have the power to undo what Christ has done. Not true. Cardinal thinking says God won't forgive you if you don't confess your sins. How many of you confessed every sin you could ever think of thinking that that was making you right with God? I did. All the time, because I was taught, your sin has separated you. That's old covenant. Sin no longer separates the believer. Carnal thinking says, my good behavior keeps me in right standing with God. Carnal thinking always points us to what we have done or what we can do. It never points us to Jesus and what he has already done for us and in us. We have been given the mind of Christ so that we can see the truth of what Jesus has actually accomplished for us. And the more we embrace the truth about who God really is and who we really are, the more we will walk in that truth. Because, you see, we live out of what we believe to be true. God thinks very differently than religion. Religion told me that God was mad at me and that I was separated from him as long as I was smoking. But that wasn't what God told me. You see, when God wanted me to quit smoking, he simply told me, I want you to quit smoking. He never once told me that it was sin. You know what he said? This is bad for you. Long term, this is going to hurt you. It's going to hurt your kids. Bad for you. He never brought up sin. You see, I was new to salvation. The whole understanding of, isn't smoking a sin, God? Isn't that what I should be worried about? I'm separated from you? No. You're going to hurt your body and you're going to hurt your kids. <laughs> Sin's already been taken care of. He will correct us. He will tell you things are bad for you. But it never changes who we are. You see, he doesn't really play fair. He knows us. <laughs> you see, he knew if he just kept pressing it on my heart, I love you. I want this for you. I love you. Please stop that. It weighs on your heart because the real you wants to please your father. <laughs> My flesh wanted to keep smoking. My new born-again spirit said, oh, I want Jesus, I want daddy to be happy. Initially, my first reaction was, no, God, no, I like it. <laughs> I like smoking. I want to quit. He just kept pressing. 
just kept pressing. And then with my new spirit and my new heart and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the mind of Christ, my flesh didn't stand a chance. I was outnumbered. My flesh was outnumbered with all that's inside of me. I convinced my heart and I even told him, don't you go changing my wanter. I want to smoke. Don't you change me. <laughs> uh, he didn't listen. <laughs> he simply works in us to change us. See, he gave us this whole brand new spirit and heart and himself so that he could get his will done from the inside out. Because that's the only way his will gets done, is from the inside out. Philippians 2.13 says this, For it is God who works in you, both to will, I love that, and to work for his good pleasure. He makes us want to do the stuff that our flesh doesn't want to do. <laughs> he changes your wanter. Suddenly you want to listen to Christian music. I remember as a new believer, Christian music? And way back then, they didn't have Christian music like they do now. It was all hymns. <laughs> God, you're going to have to change my wanter and my liker here because I don't like any of this. <laughs> and he did. I had started going to church. All they had was hymns. And I had never been in church with hymns. And when you're used to secular music, you're like, really? Why? <laughs> and I told them, God, if you want me to like this, you're going to have to make me like this because I don't. In six weeks, I loved hymns. <laughs> he just keeps working on us from the inside out to like what he likes, to want to do what he wants to do. God wasn't interested in trying to condemn me, shame me, blame me, guilt me, or convict me of sin. No, God doesn't convict us of sin. Convict means to pass a sentence of punishment. No. Now, I know Christians use that term. God's dealing with me. God's convicted me of this. I know what you mean, but it's not accurate. God's correcting me, yes. God's convicting me, passing a sentence of punishment? No. No, there is no punishment. There are consequences. But God is not punishing for our sin. He dealt with our sin in the body of Jesus. As a born-again believer, it's the indwelling power, presence, and leading of God that enables us to experience real change in our lives. The Holy Spirit isn't interested in making us feel bad about our sins and failures because there's no power to change in feeling bad. You see, I was taught, if you're really sorry, you'll never do that again. Oh, I tried to be so sorry. If sorry is the power to change, I'm going to be as sorry as I possibly can, Jesus. No power in being sorry. Self-effort. I had the power of the living God on the inside of me, and I'm trying to accomplish what he wants done by being sorry. <laughs> now, when we sin, we do feel sorry. But that's not the power to change. Jesus is the power to change. He's not interested in making us feel bad. He will correct. Don't get me wrong. Father knows how to use his father voice with me. Daughter, don't you go down that road. The Holy Spirit is the one who leads us into all truth, which usually means he has to change our stinking, fleshly, and religious thinking. It's understanding the truth of who he has made us and empowered us to be that convinces our heart 
that we really can do all things through Christ. So, it's true. You are flawless in truth. It's not just a nice idea. It's who he made us to be in our spirit. So, who we are is perfect. Who we are doesn't need to be changed. And who we are has no defect. I'm not even cracked or broken. Our who has been created in perfect righteousness and made one spirit with Christ himself. And our who is completely accepted and dearly loved by our Father. Why is it important that we understand the truth of who and what we are? Because we live according to what we believe. And our lives will only produce what we believe is the truth. Most believers actually believe that there is something very wrong with their who and their what. They believe in striving and working hard to become more like Christ, when in reality, our spirit man can't get any more like Christ. When we recognize who and what we already are, and who and what is abiding on the inside of us, we get a whole different perspective on what we need to do to overcome the flesh. And that's because that's where sin shows up in our life, only in our flesh. Flesh is stinking, stinking. It's living according to our natural senses, which is what every unbeliever does. And we are not limited to our natural senses. We are one with Christ. Sin doesn't live in our spirit anymore. It's not who we are. We are flawless because of the blood of Jesus. Instead of trying hard to change ourselves, we renew our mind to the truth of what we already are flawless in the eyes of our Father, our Jesus, and our Holy Spirit. As we begin to embrace the truth that who and what we are in Christ, how different we are from what we used to be, we don't need to be changed or fixed or improved. When we understand that there's nothing really wrong with who I am, He made me this way. He made me like purple. He made me like peanut butter. He made me this way. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with who I am. When we do that, we start trusting. Remember, entrusting ourselves to our Father. <laughs> we start trusting the God who lives inside of us to work out in us what's already in our spirit. We trust Him to do the work. We trust Him to change our wanter. Even if you ask Him not to, He will. Most of us, because we really do love our Heavenly Father and our Jesus, we try to overcome sin in our flesh by working really hard at not sinning, which is really just willpower. And willpower is of the flesh. And flesh never overcomes flesh. But Jesus has already overcome sin in the flesh. He died to it, and so have we. We have died to sin. In Christ, we have died to sin. It isn't who we are anymore. Now we've been made flawless in truth so that we can live out of who we are because that is the truth. We live out who we are. We used to sin before Jesus moved in, but now we are flawless, righteous, holy, and good. Did you know you are good? Father looks at you and says, good, good. Oh, I did such great work here. I created you. You are good. He, we're good. I don't usually think of myself that way, but my father thinks of me that way. So now, now we just need to renew our mind to the truth that already lives and abides in us. Hebrews 13, verse 20 and 21 says this. Now the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep with the blood of an eternal covenant, even our Lord Jesus, make you perfect in every good thing to do his will, 
working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. How? Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I want you to see this verse in the Weymouth translation, where it says, make you perfect. This is how Weymouth translates it. Fully equip you with every grace that you may need for the doing of his will, producing in us that which will truly please him through Jesus Christ. To him be glory to the ages of ages. You see, he gives us everything. He gives us everything we need. Every grace. If something's hard for you, Jesus, I need grace for this. I need grace to be able to do it. I need your grace to be able to change what's on the outside so that it looks like who I really am. He gives us everything we need to be successful and show Jesus off to the world. What I want you to see is we started with the word perfect in Webster's, and I want you to see it again. Perfect means finished. We have been finished in our spirit. Complete. We're completely complete. We have the fullness of Christ within us. Consummate. Brought to perfection by completing what was intended. What didn't we have when we started? We didn't have Jesus. We didn't have a new nature. We didn't have the Holy Spirit. He has completed us as a human being by giving him all of himself. The next one, not defective. There is nothing defective in who you are. You were created uniquely and you were recreated uniquely. You are not defective, having all that is requisite to its nature and kind. You know what that means? We have everything necessary to walk in his perfection, his love, his truth, his mercy, his kindness. We have everything because we have his kind, his nature. It's who we are. We have been made flawless or perfect through the blood of Jesus in our spirit. We have been born of God and made into a completely righteous human being. We do not commit sin in our spirit, only in our flesh. And our sin in our flesh is never counted against us by our Father, and it never contaminates our spirit. That doesn't mean that sin is not deadly. Sin can only produce death and destruction which is why we have been fully equipped with every grace we need in order to accomplish his will in and through our lives. At the beginning of this message, I said that I liked the examples that Noah Webster gave us regarding the word perfect because they fit Jesus so well. But the truth is they fit us so well. They were a perfect statue, a perfect likeness, a perfect work, and a perfect system. In our spirit, like a perfect statue, we are the exact representation of Jesus because we are one spirit with him. In 1 Peter 1.23, it says this, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. We are uncorruptible. Just like Jesus is the exact likeness of the Father in our spirit, we are the perfect likeness of our Father too. Ephesians 4.23 and 24, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's the only thing that needs to change is our mind. And that ye put on the new man. Where is he? On the inside. In other words, let him come out. (laughs) Who you are? Come out. (laughs) And ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. I was taught holiness was what I did. That what I did made me holy. It's a lie. (laughs) Jesus has made me holy. Jesus has set me apart unto himself. Jesus is my righteousness, 
Nothing I can do can make me holy. Now what does happen is as the Holy Spirit corrects you, who we are comes out where other people can see it, and they call it holiness. In reference to the perfect work, we don't have perfect works. We are a perfect work. We are a perfect work. He has recreated us. We are perfect. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Are there good works for us to do? Yes, they are. Which God hath foreordained that we should walk in them. We don't have to make them up. He has provided good things for us to do. All we got to do is walk where he tells us to walk. We will walk right into our good works. We will have all kinds of things we can do. But those doings don't make us righteous. Jesus did that. And finally, a perfect system. Jesus provided not only a perfect salvation and a perfect way to make it available, which is by faith, but he also gives us the faith we need by which we receive him and all of his fullness. Think about that. He lives inside of us. He has perfect faith. He gives us his faith. Now, we don't use it perfectly, (laughs) but we have perfect faith. We have the ability to walk in faith the same way Jesus did. Because he gave it to us. He gave us all that he is. Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. The old is dead and gone. Crucified. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not me. It's not me. Just me anymore. It's me, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I am full of God. But Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. All that God creates is perfect. And he created us in righteousness and true holiness. We are flawless in our spirit. We are perfectly loved, perfectly accepted. And the more we understand what Jesus has made us spiritually, the more Jesus will show up through us physically. The only thing that needs to be changed about us is our mind. And we don't even do that by ourselves. The Holy Spirit does that. It's not a self-effort program. It's a Jesus program. It's a God program. It's him living through us. But we got to know who we are. we got to know what we possess, or we'll believe all the lies the world tells us, all the lies that religion tells us. It's all about Jesus and his finished work. So the truth is, yes, you are flawless in your spirit. And the more we know that and believe that, That's what we'll start to live out in our life. Amen? So, Father God, I thank you for your word. Father God, our flesh finds it hard to believe that you think we're perfect. Our flesh has trouble with faith. Our flesh hinders us from time to time. Our flesh causes us to stumble and fall. But, Father God, our spirit man, our spirit man relishes living in your presence. Our spirit man relishes knowing that you are never angry, even when we fall. Our spirit man rejoices in the fact that you have made me whole and complete and flawless. I'm not a cracked pot. I am completely whole in Christ Jesus. I'm not broken. I'm not broken. My spirit man is completely whole in Christ Jesus. And you work that wholeness out in my life. You change my mind. You change my heart. You give me the power, the strength, and the grace to fulfill all the good things you have planned for me. But Father God, we need to remember that we are not broken. 
We're not a work in progress. We are a finished work, learning that we're a finished work. We're a finished work practicing our finished workness. You are the one that works your life out in us. And Father God, I thank you that all I do is lean on you over and over again. You have and are all the answers. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.